son had a gift with technology. With reliable internet at home through the Internet Essentials Program, the world opened up. He's part of this next generation of young people who feel they can thrive. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to help open doors for the next generation with the connectivity and skills they need to build a future of unlimited possibilities. We got another day of NBA action. And with FanDuel, every night is a watch party. So it's time for your FanDuel crew to make their bets. So, what's the move tonight, gang? You know that new customers who bet $5 get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Woohoo! We're heating up, fam. Bet all the stars with all your friends and make every moment more only on FanDuel. New customers bet $5, get $200 back in bonus bets if you win. Make every moment more with FanDuel. One plus and present in Virginia. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued is non-withdrawable bonus vest that expires seven days after receipt. See full terms at fanduel.com slash sportsbook. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Blog Talk Radio. You are now listening to True Murder the most shocking killers in true crime history, and the authors that have written about them. Gacy, Bundy, Dahmer, The Night Stalker, BTK. Every week, another fascinating author talking about the most shocking and infamous killers in true crime history. True Murder, with your host, journalist and author, Dan Zupanski. Dan Zupanski for the program True Murder, the most shocking killers in true crime history and the authors that have written about them. His trials have garnered him acclaim as one of the greatest criminal defense lawyers of the century. He's the white tornado in court, a semantic samurai, a shaman, a shaman, a bard, a hero to some, a trickster to others, and always a force to be reckoned with, respected by all. Lust for Justice, The Radical Life and Law of J. Tony Serra is a no-holds-barred examination of the man, his renegade lifestyle, his resolute beliefs, and the legal system he serves and transforms. Filled with murder, drugs, and death penalty cases, snitches, the psychological elements of crime, the nullification and nexus with juries, closing arguments, and more, Lust for Justice pulls the black robe off the justice system to reveal what it is a Railroad to Prison for Minorities. Author and artist Paulette Frankel followed Tony Serra in and out of the courtroom for more than a decade to capture in words and images this man who embodies justice and drama at, at their best. In Lust for Justice, you view the law through the eyes of one of its greatest practitioners, and you'll never look at it the same way again. Uh, the focus of our program this evening is the book Lust for Justice with my uh, special guest, Artist and author Paulette Frankel, The Radical Life and Law of J. Tony Serra. And with me, uh, uh, joining uh, Paulette Frankel, is J. Tony Serra, or Tony Serra. Welcome to the program, J. Tony Serra and Paulette Frankel, and thank you to, for agreeing to, to this interview. 
Good evening, Tony, and good evening, uh, Paulette, and thank you for agreeing to this interview. Thank you for having us. Yes, we're we're uh, eager to help, and uh, we're appreciative of your interest. Thank you very much. Now, let's uh, really introduce this. Uh, Paulette, uh, tell us a little bit about your background and why a, a courtroom artist and, and an artist in general and how you decided to and why you decided to write a book about Tony Serra. Tell us what brought you to this particular project. Um, <clears throat> this book is was sort of like, um, I don't know, an unplanned for baby or child. I was I, I saw Tony Serra in court and was absolutely blown away by his intensity. He was archetypal energy itself. And as an artist, I I sort of set my sights on um, being able to to do him justice, artistically speaking. I thought if I could begin to portray his many facets, his faces, his sides, his passion, his compassion, his rage in art form, I would have arrived as an artist in my own opinion and my own eyes. So um, I made it kind of my purpose in life to follow him around and do that. <clears throat> and during a large trial, the L.A. Nestle trial, which he invited me to um, attend, I, I asked him, Tony, where's the book? There's so much publicity and uh, the media is all over this thing and why is there no book about you? And he grumbled, as is his style. And... Um, so I said, let's do one, My Art, Your Words, and I fully expected him to write the damn book, right. but he didn't. Um, he eventually just threw boxes and boxes and boxes of newspaper clippings and tape recordings and photos and sort of shards of his life at me and said, here, it's your baby, I don't have time. And uh, I felt like I'd just been swallowed by an avalanche. So that's basically how it began. Right. Now, uh, Tony, maybe you can take us back to your own uh, background that obviously shaped your unique philosophy. So tell us a little bit, take us back to uh, when you were born and, and tell us a little bit about your family life that obviously shaped your uh, personal philosophy. And, and along the way, I guess you could tell us some of those things that did shape your philosophy and what that philosophy is in your own personal life. Uh, I'll get the abbreviated form. Uh, I was... Uh, what they call a home birth in San Francisco, California, in uh, 1934. Uh, each of my uh, parents had uh, not uh, one, you know, went through the third grade, one went through the fourth grade. Uh, my father worked uh, a union worker in, in a factory and was steady, and so there was, uh, you know, food and schooling and nourishment. Uh, I regard myself as uh, upper-lower class <laughs> upper only lower. because my father you know, worked and, and right. supported his family in a, in a good way. Uh, I think uh, he was never a citizen. He, he came over from Mallorca at a very young age. And Mallorca is an island um, you know, off of Spain and Mediterranean, uh, never applied right. for citizenship. 
So I don't know in, in that sense, and maybe in a limited sense. One, I identify with proletariat. I identify with union at an early age. I identify with immigrant. I identified with bilingual. Uh, uh, it's been a lifelong identification uh, that sure. I have with what used to be called proletariat class, and proletariat class most of the time is victim, you know, of the broader society or the dominant, let's call it, milieu of a society. So I think at an early stage, I was robustly anti-establishment, anti-authority, anti-law enforcement, anti-penology, anti-criminal prosecution. You know, I, I just quickly adhere to a very... A negative, almost nihilistic view uh, pertaining to establishments, principles and mores, behavior, uh, the distribution of wealth, etc., etc. So, uh, uh, oddly, I uh, got good grades. So I was almost straight A through high school, and I was an athlete. And so I went down to Stanford and uh, actually became more intellectual and less athletic. But I did box and get my letter. I played on the football team. I played on the baseball team. I did all of them poorly, but I, I continued that. But at the same time, I became a, a philosophy major, specializing in epistemology, and uh, English minor, 1850 to 1900 English literature. So there's this kind of, you know, potential intellect, academic lifestyle that could have somehow been out there, but somehow that was rejected readily. And so I found myself in North Africa kind of doing a Hemingway thing, you know, romanticizing the fallacy of being the expatriate, uh, you know, writing uh, uh, from a foreign port with a foreign perspective, and I don't know, somehow, uh, you know, being accepted as a writer at that point, and it was ill-founded. I fell into a group that were doing a lot of um, opiates and uh, um, you know, hashies, et cetera, and after a while I felt that my life had fallen kind of too much into sensualities and, you know, not enough academia and not enough, like, political content. So right. I applied at the University of California by mail in those days, and uh, I uh, went to Bolt Hall, which is UC Berkeley, and it was in the late uh, 50s, early 60s, and things were just starting to move at that time. We had the free speech movement, and we had, you know, campus demonstrations, so I quickly absorbed you, that mentality and identified with that mentality, and then uh, I was a good student. I was near the top of my class, and... So I was bright enough to write the briefs and bold enough to go into court. So right away when I started, I call it the golden age of law. I was representing the Black Panthers and the White Panthers. I represented the SLA. I represented the Black Gorilla family. I, I represented Huey Newton himself after he returned uh, from Cuba in the murder case. 
Um, right. uh, Russell Little of the SLA I represented, uh, Jacques Roger of the New World Liberation Front. So I, right away I started because San Francisco was just a, you know, a, a complete, you know, political tornado at that time, and I was in the swirl of it. And so I practiced very vigorously. I was a pro bono lawyer. I've always been, you know, a pro bono lawyer. I take plain cases only to pay everything required to practice. I don't uh, believe ultimately in profiteering from law. So I was very popular. I was very outspoken. I, as I look back, I, I, uh, uh, you know, suffered more contempt charges than any other lawyer in the area. I went to all the various jails on contempt, uh, mostly connected with political causes. So I, I blossomed in the 60s into what's called a radical lawyer. And somehow I got hooked, you know, on jury trials. So I became a jury trial specialist and was known and still known, you know, some, I don't even know, 50 years later, as a, what they call a back-to-back jury person. That's like a public defender for life, you know, going one trial after the next. Not all winnable. Right. Some of them, you know, completely what they call dead on arrival, but going sure. for the hang, you know, going for the political element, going for the larger vision. And um, it's been very exciting. And, uh, you know, uh, I'm getting up there in age, and I'm still doing it very vigorously. Uh, Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. For instance, I was in a special circumstance case for about over two months. That's my last the trial. And uh, that means either death penalty or LWOP, life without possibility of parole. It turned out to be LWOP, so the man's life was saved. Uh, and uh, I had two trials set for this week that did not go. So I'm still at you know near nearly 78, but I'm still going like I did in the <laughs> 60s, working six or seven days a week. You know, completely obsessed, completely, uh, you know, possessed by the case and by the issues. Our office represents, you know, the occupiers, which I I consider the most significant movement presently. We Mm go, uh, you know, to a number of uh, cities in Northern California to do so. We take political cases. I still represent the ELF and ALF when the time uh, arises. I uh, represent people demonstrate in in uh, Berkeley, uh, so I, in a way, uh, I'm an extension still of the '60s. I uh, have disavowed, you know, uh, ownership of property, so I, I'm, I'm I don't have real property. I have an old car. I pay rent in the vicinity of about $400 a month. I. Um, uh, wow have no real material appetites and therefore I live in a frugal you know lifestyle and um committed you know to case after case and will do so I guess until I go see now or die of a heart attack during a closing argument that's the abbreviated history of me yes well thank you 
Uh, now, uh, Paulette, uh, tell us basically, uh, Tony has t- told us about his background, and of course, very, very humbly, he's not going to be able to tell us everything about about his character. But tell us a little bit more about uh, what attracted you, uh, specifically in terms of his philosophy, what sort of compelled you, because you talk in such glowing terms, and it's like you've known him forever and ever, so you've obviously gotten close to him. So tell us about the very first time that the case that you got invited to, and we're talking about the Ellie Nessler case, and what you were, what you admired about his philosophy, and and saw that philosophy in application at this trial. Um, well, first of all, the Ellie Nessler case was not the first time that Tony and I um, had that I was in the courtroom with Tony. It was my first big case that he had done. Tony does a lot of cases that get no mention because they're not uh, high-profile cases. Right. But um, to answer your question, I'm sort of a, a drama junkie. I, I go where the, you know, where intense energy is, and I'm, I find myself, I'm a moth, I guess, that likes to be singed but not burned. And so um, I was, um, I just kind of by dumb luck ended up in a courtroom while waiting for a friend to do a mer- finish a nursing exam. And um, it was it happened to be a good case. Most cases, or an awful lot of them, are so boring you just can hardly stay awake. But this was an exciting case, and I started to sketch it. It was the first time I sketched in a courtroom, and I thought, this is great. I can do this. And uh, a lawyer said, if you want drama, if it's, if it's drama you're looking for, Tony Sarah's your man. There's no one that can hold a candle to him. He's the law and drama at its best. He wears funky old clothes from the thrift. He has long hair. He um, gets up there without notes. He's incredibly perceptive. He's hard-hitting. And he's he's just he's the one. He's, he's, he's the drama of the courtroom. So I tried to chase him down, and it took me a year. I, people kept putting me off and sending me in on wrong directions, and I was in irritation to his office staff, and for some reason I felt like life was blocking me from this this great encounter with Tony Sarah. And finally, after a year, I did encounter him, and at that time I felt like, well, maybe my skills were such that I could begin to um, draw him in a way that would be meaningful. But even at that, it took me a, m- a lot longer uh, to be able to draw him in a way that really conveyed his energy and his passions. Um, so the Ellie Nessler case was, that was the first big, big, big case, and I've forgotten what the rest of your question was. Well, you know, the thing is, what we would talk about, too, is you, you talk about the drama, but uh, bef- before I had, uh, agreed to take this, to to do this interview, uh, before you had even approached me, I'd seen Tony, but of course I didn't recollect his name. But I have seen footage of Tony in court. So when we're talking drama, and then what I thought was interesting is the thing that you included is his, again, maverick, uh, cavalier techniques here that he includes, and that you've included as sort of a, well, this is what this is the lengths that he will go to, and, and these are the kinds of things that he employs. Which is when you talk about letting his hair down and and putting it in a ponytail one day and letting it run free and then and tucking it under. You know, so tell us a little bit about why you're saying that he's dramatic, 
Um, for those people who haven't seen any footage, and what do you mean by dramatic? Well, most lawyers, most of, in fact, I would, I think I can almost clearly say, with the exception of perhaps Jerry Spence, that the cases that I have attended with other lawyers, they're cerebral. And quite frankly, right. you know, that has its place, but it's also very limited. Tony fights from the gut, and um, he hits the jury in their humanity, and he hit me in my humanity. And I was taken to places I had never been before, and his his rage was, is so unbridled that I thought, my God, well, you know, what's it like to to be like that, to feel like that, and and more excitingly, to draw that. Um, and in order for me to draw it, I had to perceive him in my own body structure, uh, so that I could draw from my gut and not from. I don't know, just window shopping the situation. And so um, when Tony is is representing a client, you get the feeling that he's not holding back. And most lawyers feel like they're just sort of mouthing words that have a lot of sort of, I don't know, uh, high educational value. And if somebody is not an intellectual, they barely even understand what they're saying. But there's nothing not understandable about Tony. I mean, he's he's a wild man in court. He will go to the lengths of frothing at the mouth. It's really quite shocking. And um, I don't know, that excited me. I, don't ask me why I like that. I like gorillas. I like wild things. Right. Yeah, so what I meant by dramatic, too, is that you, and you capture it in your art, which was included in your book. Again, very unique book in that this type of art is included and again we'll talk a little bit more near the near the end about the artwork itself and uh, what you were trying to achieve it with it as well but really some of it is just how uh, energetic he is in court and waving his arms around and, and and willing to take the role of 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 the victim and the perpetrator and acting out and pantomiming so that's what i mean by drama too that's very very unusual for for lawyers to get past their sort of stayed uh, composure to be able to start acting out the drama of of a, a murder, say, for example, in a murder trial or some of the other trials that you've included in the book. So I don't know anybody else who's doing that. And, and in his heat of passion, he doesn't talk about heat of passion. He becomes it. And the jury is, you know, usually rather horrified. They've Most of them have never seen heat of passion in their face. And Tony just, he becomes the rage and the, the craziness that he's representing that led to this event that um, usually is a murder or something of that caliber. And he, he, he is it, you know, you just, you get, you get, you get it, you, you get the idea of what's going on here. Right. Now, uh, Tony, for, for our audience to really try to explain why you're such a radical lawyer, when I first heard that you were a radical lawyer, I said, well, what's he going to do, tell the truth? Because, you know, I didn't even know what that meant. But uh, the Ellie uh, Nessler case, uh, you call it maternal justice, but really uh, I'd almost uh, – uh, my title would be maternal instinct or cold-blooded murder – now tell us a little bit. Tell us about the Ellie Nestler case, uh, Tony, and why it was important to you, and what the case represented to you. 
please take us through the case briefly. Okay. But what did it uh, represent to you? When I first met her, she was represented by uh, a very fine uh, lawyer from the East Coast with a lot of jury experience and, uh, how would I say, uh, uh, eloquent, uh, you know, not, not a routine lawyer. He wanted to present her as a... Uh, oh, I don't know, uh, you know, a person uh, who righteously or, you know, morally uh, committed an act, almost like a jury nullification that uh, was required by what had occurred. Uh, he did not want to present her with any kind of a mental defense. She, on the other hand, did not want to be, you know, politicized. I think while it was occurring, she responded well after the trial. I don't think she ever responded well again to the media and to the attention. She always insisted that God had talked to her and directed her and opened the door to allow her in during a recess and you know, had in essence uh, uh, interceded uh, and compelled her uh, to do the act. And what she wanted to do is emphasize that aspect. So one of my fortes has been defense that involves psychiatry. So obviously you have not guilty by reason of insanity. You have dismissals uh, of uh, cases uh, and referring them to psychiatric wards when they're incompetent. You have what uh, used to be called diminished uh, capacity, now called diminished actuality. You have... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free and Anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Eat a passion. Uh, there's a great, you have uh, unconsciousness, you have uh, intoxication. There's an awful lot of mental defenses. So uh, with her, she had had a, uh, a break, a schizophrenic break, and she had backgrounds in that area. And I won't go in, you know, to all the horrible things she's experienced as a child. Uh, so uh, I have had cases, you know, this is a seven-shrink case, this is an eight-shrink case, where you put on in ex 
expert psychiatrist after expert psychiatrist after expert psychiatrist. So it's one of my strengths. It's one of my fortes. So when, you know, I heard that's what she wanted and she wanted to discharge the other lawyer because he wanted to present her an entirely different way, that excited me because I'm I know that I've done that I've worked with psychiatry the 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 you know the the wedding say of psychiatry in law for me has always been exciting and innovating and uh, a frontier so it was something I liked that was one and two uh, is that. Uh, there was, you know, I don't know, a moral issue there, uh, which attracted everyone. This uh, uh, decedent was going to walk on a rather horrendous child molestation because her child could not testify at a preliminary hearing. He was crying. He was wringing his hands. And when the the uh, in-custody defendant, the molester of the child, saw that, he sneered at them. And that was the sneer that broke her. You see, the sneer was a manifestation of his state of mind, and it was said to her, I'm going to walk out of here, and I'm going to abuse your child. And that's when she flipped. And that's when God spoke to her. And that's when she went out to get the gun. And the court should have been closed. But magically it was open. And no one was in it. And only, you know, the defendant. And he was handcuffed. And she went up to him and she shot him and killed him. But she always thought she was fulfilling the will of God. So the, the fact, you know, that, uh, one, there's this, it changed the law which needed reform. Now, in California, where there's been victims, child victims of sexual molestation, they can testify in a different room. They don't have to look at the person. They can do it, you know, through video. So uh, the reform was required. That kind of issue uh, has to be aired. Psychiatric testimony was very profound. All aspects of the case were challenging. Um, As I indicated, she became a media hero. She could uh, go in front of a camera like she learned. You know, her her learning curve was straight up. Uh, She she, uh, was dynamic. And then, you know, unfortunately, she got cancer. She only did two years on the whole fence, and and she came out, I think, like a different human being, and after that, her life spiraled. So, uh, in a way, it was not a political case. In, in, In a way, it was, you know, not my norm. But if People like Paulette, because of the drama, there sure as heck was a lot of drama in that case. There was drama every minute in that particular case. And, you know, it was almost like an 18-hour day. Now, you haven't really explained too much, and like I'd, I'd like to use this opportunity to do that. What was your approach in terms of, again, you said this is she had a maternal instinct. She had a history of molestation in her past. She had this, again, he sneered. 
her her son was only six years old, or maybe by that time seven years old. So this was how profound it was. Why the the media and the and the the public was behind her was because they were very very sympathetic. So you had that to your. Did you use vigilante, that to your Vigilante justice. That's what. That's why. Because people wanted vigilante justice in these extreme, you know, conditions, and that's what attracted them. Even when she said this was not an act of vigilante justice, this was an act, you know, of temporary insanity. But but she will never be known for an act of temporary insanity. She will be known historically for vigilante justice, taking the law into your own hand when the law cannot settle, you know, a dysfunctional uh, situation. So, yeah, there's many people of that ilk, and we have it instinctually as a remnant of, of past, you know, survival techniques. So, you know, that's the hot button there, vigilante justice. And she would be the last to claim that that was in her mind at the time. Now, now the thing is, what you did is you did overcome incredible uh, obstacles here, because despite the fact that the public was behind you and, and you had an unsympathetic child molester who's sneering and a six-year-old, you got you got everybody is sympathizing with the mother and the victim, and certainly not with the killer, the molester that was killed. But at the same time, you have to overcome that she went out and got the gun. And so in many states, with many, most lawyers, you've got to admit that this person, this woman, would have been convicted of a first-degree or a second-degree murder. So you got her a really, uh, you, you had a victory with this. Tell us how you, tell us a little bit more about how you approached the case, knowing that this is the likelihood, and how you dealt with that jury. See, a lot of people don't understand the, the concept of legal insanity. Within the concept of legal insanity, there could be premeditation, deliberation. It, it, there can be, you know, a first-degree scenario. But if you're insane, the law doesn't hold you responsible. Right. Remember, he, here's the Oracle-type imagery, and it's a Poe, Edgar Allan Poe. Remember, you know, uh, the telltale heart. Right. Remember, he goes up every night and he opens the, the door and he lets the lantern light go on the eye. He liked his uncle, but it was the eye. And he does it night after night, and then he finally goes in and kills the uncle, and then he buries the body behind the wall or under the floor, and, you know, detectives come sure. in hears it, and that's the telltale heart. heart. He, he's completely crazy. He's mad under any index of, of madness. Sure. But the crime was completely premeditated, deliberated, you know, it, it went over a number of days. Uh, there was perhaps uh, intervals of sanity, but nonetheless, no one would, you know, disagree that that man was insane. But there's, there was premeditation and deliberation in his actions. So uh, if if you can convince a jury to follow the law in this area, there can be premeditation deliberation in a psychotic state, in a complete psychotic break. You know, the criterion under McNaughton is, one, you don't know the nature and quality of your behavior. Well, that wasn't her. She knew what the hell she was doing, we might infer. But the second leg is that you can't distinguish between right and wrong. 
And that's where she was legally insane. God told her to do it. It wasn't her will. It wasn't her volition. He intervened. And that, that means that she thought she was doing God's will. She thought she was doing the right thing, the good thing, the moral thing. And therefore, she could not distinguish between right and wrong. Therefore, she's insane. It, the, the, the premeditation, deliberation, don't count one bit. What really counts in those cases is what the shrinks say. It's our best index to legal insanity. You know, we don't throw them in the river any longer. And if they float, they're, you know, sane. And if they, you know, the, uh, whatever, if they go under and drown, they're insane or cursed by God or guilty of the offense. We don't do it any longer. We use psychiatry. And psychiatry is imperfect, but psychiatry is the best tool for probing mentality that we have. Right. Now, Paulette, uh, tell us about uh, another case that uh, you cover in the book that you personally witnessed. And uh, just tell us about that case and what you experienced watching Tony, Sarah. Um, Well, the Bear Lincoln case is one of my favorites. Okay. this was a Native American case, and I have a, a soft spot for the plight of the Native American. Um, I think it's absolutely um, unconscionable what we, the so-called white civilized society, has done to them. And um, this case, Tony turned around a, a nearly impossible situation, or what would have been an impossible situation, and... Um, Bear Lincoln went free, and and the thing that I found beautiful about this case was all the sort of um, side issues that went on with ceremony and drumming and uh, the buckskin vest that was sewn by aunties and put on every day in court and aired out every night to um, uh, get rid of the the vibrate the bad vibrations of the court and so there was just a tremendous amount of deep ceremony that attended this case and uh, I found it extremely moving uh, it was a death penalty case uh, Bear Lincoln um, shot and killed in self-defense a uh, a sheriff and there actually were two sheriffs and it turned out that the uh, the sheriff that was shot and killed, it turned out that it was friendly fire by his buddy, blew half his head off, and not Bear Lincoln at all. But just the fact that Bear Lincoln was native was tantamount to guilt, so he was automatically considered um, a murderer and was facing the death penalty. And there's a little more to the story, too, that that part of the defense was is that... uh, uh, is again because these are side issues. Is, is these uh, the social aspect of it? Uh, how he was raised and and the mistrust of the police, uh, primarily white, and and some of the other th- that the things that re- that happened that evening that created this this fear that was tangible for him. And he shot in self defense, not shooting at anyone personally, just shooting in defense after being what he claimed have to have been fire, shots fired on him for no reason. And that he also 
uh, looted police and, and feared for his life. So tell us a little bit more about that because that's a fascinating, uh, fascinating drama, and this opens up the book too in chapter one. So, well, I mean, I, I think I'll pass to Tony since he's the okay. master on this. But um, basically, I, I would like to say that of the Native Americans that I know, and I now know quite a few. I live in Santa Fe, and you know, there's a there's a high percentage of Native Americans here. And I can attest to the fact that all Native Americans have issue with the white man and his law, and I don't blame them. And they will they will uh, protect themselves in any way they can. And mostly, um, you know, if they have to run, they run. And it's not the same as running out of guilt. It's just wanting to get the hell out of there because the white man's law has never done them any good and has been, in fact, uh, the source of all of their problems and and terrible history and um, the background. So anyway, I, I will pass this on to Tony to do the legal... Well, I, I think uh, one of the, the connotation, one of your questions was... Uh, the history of the genocide of the Pacific Northwest Indians at the hands of the white uh, settlers and white um, vigilantes, and, uh, etc. And so uh, it was the second time that I participated in defense of Native American uh, for allegedly killing a police officer. And in each time we utilized as part of our defense what's now known as the cultural defense. And the cultural defense explores the state of mind of the uh, defendant at the time uh, of the offense. So we had here a duration where our client had uh, fled. He had absconded. He ran from the scene. And there is a law that's well placed in in. California particularly is utilized by prosecutors whenever they can. And it boils down to flight is an indicator, or they call it indicia. Flight's an indicia of guilt. You run away, you must have a guilty mind. So using that as a focal point, very small microcosm within the case, we blew it up. And we put on experts, you know, from all walks of life, Harvard professors, state your name, you know, state's his name, state your profession, state your specialty, you know, state what publications you have created in this specialty, and then at the end, state your tribe. I can remember one saying, Apache. And then you go into the history of the genocide and why they distrust white and why they always run for white. And he, you know, at an early age, when the police raid in the Indian compounds and the reservations, the children all run in the in the in the middle of winter. You know, when the ground is snow and the river is partly frozen over, you have the children hiding from the police when they come there to you know arrest the father. For 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 something you know real or spurious, so there is great fear. 
So we have the jury crying. We put on weeks and weeks of the history of the genocide. They, you know, they killed 95% of all of the Indians. Uh, they would bring in the scalps. They were paying for Indian scalps. They ran out of money. They were given $25, you know, for every Indian you killed. And, and they ran out of money, and the, the, the ones who used to kill uh, Indians for scalps and for money would have to go into Nevada to get their money. That's how uh, we, we put on stories where the, the vigilante, you know, whites would go into an Indian camp. They'd kill all the men. Then, you know, the, the, they'd rape the woman, and then they would take the babies. And they would swing them around and smash them against the trees. And so, you know, those are the kind of things that, that we put in the jury's mind. And mind you, well, at the same time, they're hearing these horrific tales and they're really openly weeping. You, the, the whole court is surrounded by Native Americans. It's a small court in Ukiah, California, old-fashioned court. And they're drumming and they're chanting. And they're singing, and they're, you know, utilizing every effort to infiltrate the courtroom, to impregnate the jury with their passion and their fury, because he was truly innocent. It turns out, just as, as Paulette said, turns out that it was the gunfire the, of his fellow officer who killed right. him. It wasn't my client at all. And therefore, he was truly factually innocent. So it was, you know, a fabulous case. We were smoked. And that means that before you go into court, the courtroom, we were allowed, because it's an Indian religious ceremonial act that's allowed, like you can bring, you know, a, a Bible or, or a right. religious book in, into court. And, and so the, he was allowed that. So the lawyers would go into the holding cell, the holy person would come in, and we would be smoked and we would be chanted upon and we would be prayed for. And then we walked out and there would be the jury and we were still, the smoke is coming off of our clothes. You know, they could feel the strength of the religious ceremony at that point. Yeah. I don't think that's ever happened, uh, you know, uh, ever uh, to be smoked in court prior to court commencing, and, you know, where yeah. they can see it and smell it and feel it, the jury, and then outside the chanting and the drums beating and seeming like the, the whole court, you know, is vibrating. We we knew early that we would never, ever lose. You can always hang anything. You know, I can hang it for you or against you, but we would never lose because one is I think we showed overwhelmingly that he was factually innocent, and two is the cultural defense so sensitizes you. So, you know, it creates ultimately this, this profound empathy, this... this uh, uh, complete, you know, guilt feeling about the fact that the Indians were genocided, that uh, when it's relevant, it's overwhelming. And, you know, I put the three things together, the presence of the Indians, the drummings and their ceremony and their presence in court and the presence of the holy people and the presence of their prayers, one. Two, the fact that he was factually innocent. And three, the cultural defense. And it was very triumphant. It was a great case. And it was very significant to the Native Americans because once again, they had extended. They had extended to white man's law. White man's law, you know, for them, justice means just us, that is white. 
and they've never been treated equally, and they've never been given a break, and they've never really been understood, and they don't want to be part of it. And once again, they, you know, put their heart and their mind into the process. And once, you know, symbolically they were rewarded this particular case, it stands ultimately for, you know, white man justice on one occasion, jury justice on one occasion for a wrongfully charged Native American. And there's so many Native Americans and other minorities who, like him, ultimately get railroaded because they don't have good lawyers, because no one will fight for them, because they're stereotyped, because they're ultimately outcast in our culture. So it was, uh, uh, you know, a very strong symbolic political case. Well, you know, for the audience that doesn't know this, but but maybe this is a point you could either agree or disagree, but I think that it it really comes down to the often that there's not that many Robin Hoods of law like yourself that are going to go and do stuff pro bono and and spend the necessary funds and then have the skills that you, you have acquired over your almost 50 years or 50 years of practice really comes down to who can afford uh, certain lawyers, isn't it? We've seen that. It, what you're saying is absolutely true and isn't it a tragedy? Sure. That you know, now we more concretely understand the manipulation of the 1% over the 99%. But it's always been true in law that the rich walk you know, while the poor go to prison. It's present in death penalty. It's present in percent of prosecution. It's present in statistics regarding resolution of cases. And that is another aspect of this country yet you know, purports to be egalitarian, dem- democratic, and you know, due process for everyone that has utterly failed. Because just what you said, if you have a good lawyer, your chances uh, are extremely better than if you have mediocre lawyer. If you have the resources to get the experts and the resources to get the investigation and the resources to get the witnesses, your chances are enhanced and poor people don't have those resources public defenders offices you know as good as they are and as idealistic as most of them are do not have the resources they're overworked they don't have enough money they can't really do a case like a private lawyer with resources so you know in a sense there that we need more pro bono lawyers and you know, there's constant movement to create in the large office a section that would do pro bono work. But it isn't enough to be pro bono. Just what you said, you've got to have the experience. And the experience comes, you know, from throwing yourself into one case after the next. And a lot of lawyers don't like that. I can remember when I first started. You know, I'm like a public defender. I go to law, start a new trial every week in, in the old days. Now they take longer. But these would come up to Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. They'd say, oh, Tony, you're never going to make any money like that. Well, I settled, you know, 10 cases, uh, you know, for, in, during the time that you tried one. And that means yeah. uh, at least I made 10 times more than you. You can't go on trying the cases. It's going to be bad, you know, for, you, for you, your your uh, uh, career or whatever way they were expressing it. But that keep, <laughs> you know, that wasn't my motive. I took what they yeah. call a de facto a vow of poverty. I don't believe in owning private property. I don't believe in, you know, the probate system where you can pass it on. I don't believe in corporations for all of the obvious reasons. I um, I don't believe in income tax. As you know, I'm a lifelong tax right. protester, having been convicted three times of non-payment you know, payment or late payment or failure to pay, and uh, not moral turpitude, not felonious, you know, so my bar license uh, remains uh, with me. But uh, uh, I, I early decided if, if, any, you know, if something's valuable and it's ideological, to you, to you, it's relativistic. Then materialism interferes with that. I'm free to be compulsive, obsessive uh, about uh, cases, about whom I represent, about the ideology of the person I represent. Uh, you know, that's my world. That's my microcosm, and I don't have to worry about stocks and bonds and what the percent of interest is, and you know whether the stock market is doing well, and uh, you know what the the, the housing market, uh, you know uh, what what its uh, status is. All of that is completely sure. eliminated. I don't sit on the weekend on, on some fancy, you know, boat. I don't take, you know, uh, uh, expensive meals. Uh, uh, very frugal. Uh, uh, maybe I distinguish myself, you know, with old clothes and used clothes and clothes that don't fit me and things like that. And part of that maybe was calculated, but it stemmed from the fact I took a vow and I don't buy anything new. I haven't bought anything new in 50 years. I get <laughs> gifts. You know, normally they're ties, and I have a zillion ties. I put them all over the wall. The moths eat the ones that are edible. Uh, but beyond ties, I don't know if I have any any things. You know, I've never valued things. And so I don't collect you know anything of value i collect the uh, matchboxes i collect eyes i guess <laughs> i don't know if i collect anything else i collect victories you know yeah, uh, say, yeah. that's that's my uh passion you know is uh, i always say not guilty are the two holiest words in jurisprudence so it's uh it's not guilty uh, is what, you know, I pursue. That, that's uh, my banner. Uh, Dan, I would just like to interject something here. Sure. Um, back to, back to um, 
the underdog not being able to afford a good a, a good lawyer, good representation. I think the thing that is that most distinguishes a great lawyer from um I guess the rest of the pack, for lack of a better word, is uh creativity and vision. And one of the things that Tony brings to court that I find absolutely hair raising is his way of um, of pulling out of a gruesome situation of the tra- of the case um, a, a particular detail or or set of details that sets it apart and makes his, it, it becomes an argument unto itself, and then the prosecution has to deal with that. And, um, you know, many lawyers just plod on the information. They're basically muskoxes on a, on a pole going in circles. And um, a person of Tony's caliber, of which unfortunately there are very few, if, if any, um, he has a vision and he's able to, he's able to pull out the details to create a case around certain elements that Somebody else wouldn't think about, and this is what this is one of the things that gives him his power. Now, what I wanted to ask too is that uh, Tony, you know, I've uh, interviewed uh, lawyers that became judges, and I, uh, and so they've gave me their philosophy. They say, you know, this is this is what I've fought for. I've I've gone in the military to fight for this right that everybody deserves uh, the best lawyer that they possibly can get. Now there are there are a myriad of differences between you and a typical lawyer in not only in technique but also in philosophy. Now I found it interesting that uh, very much like other attorneys they say it's not as important whether the client you may not even ask the client if they're guilty. I I, I don't know if I read this in this book but again don't let me quote you but how do you other than, okay, this is a cause that I believe in, how do you approach every single client in terms of their guilt? Easiest how do you How do you, re- again, that's the question that a lot of people that are very, that don't know enough about the law, how do you wrestle with that? What is your criteria? How do you reason this? I, if I started debriefing clients, I would have none. That's what police do. I don't debrief them. I go on a need-to-know basis, hypothetically. I get a police report. The getaway car, you know, is a blue Chevy. I ask the client, and this this is oversimplified, but this is the way you do it, the way I do it. Uh, Do you have a blue Chevy? Mm, Does any of your friends have a blue Chevy? You know, uh, is anyone going to testify that they've seen you in a blue Chevy? Well, you know, uh, on a premise that he hasn't been identified and the car hasn't been identified and there's circumstantial evidence that links him to the car, maybe even someone's statement. But it's called a need to know. You don't encourage a whole narrative. In fact, you tell them, shut up, I don't even want to hear it. You, you ask specific issues. Now, there comes a time... And it can be very early or very late on a decision of whether to put the client on or not. Right. And obviously, then you have to go into the matters deeper. 
why. Previously, it was only for purpose of cross-examination and to obtain witnesses on your behalf and, you know, subpoena evidence, investigate aspects of the case. But here, you know, he's going to be examined on every issue. So I kind of do it like a prosecutor does it. I say, these are going to be the kind of questions you're going to be asked. And I'll, I'll go at them like I'm a prosecutor. And the first time, I don't even ask them to answer. I want them to know what, what they're going to be subjected to. And then, you know, later I'll see their answers. It's not my prerogative to grade them and, you know, change them or anything. But, you know, I won't take a case, at least nowadays, where I don't have a strong belief in some factors that will allow for acquittal. I'm not going to take, you know, but I do, I say that and then I do it. I'm not taking these dogs or these dead on arrivals and, you know, how you put so much emotion and so, so, so much of your psyche into it and how crushing it is to lose when every day of trial merely is another nail in your client's coffin and you never, the lawyer never recovers. So there's always something I strongly believe in and that's what I want to, you know, bring out. It can be moral, it can be legal, it can be factual, it can be mitigating, it can be psychiatric. And you, and, and as Follett says, you've got to get passionate about that. You have to emote about that. You have to convey that. That has to obliterate everything else. That has to overcome reason and logic. You know, we, the defense bar, we we are in, you know, the sub-cerebral. We're not in the cerebral. We would lose all, you know, many, many more cases if we operated in the so-called rational cerebral order, the logical, you know, sequence, et cetera, the reasonable inference. So we have to, we have to moat. We have to remote around an issue that can be reasonable doubt. And in terms of what the client did and did not, you have to emphasize, obviously, you know, the issue that one has emotional content, second, moral content, and third, you know, is true, and four, is enough to influence the jury. Understand that most cases have a large, large aspect of jury nullification. So those are the kind of issues, the moral issues, you know, the the, the the issues that may not relate directly to guilt or innocence, but the moral kind of background or the, you know, the, the high uh, the calling of some of the behavior, uh, those are where the jury starts to be vulnerable, and that is the defense, you know, territory. So, I don't know, going back to just answering a blank, if I walked in and said, did you do it or did you, you know, not do it? Most cases aren't, did you do it or did you not do it? They're, most cases are self-defense, psychiatric defense, you know, no uh, identification. They're not like uh, mysteries. They're not like, you know, there's going to be uh, during the trial the uncovering of some evidence that points to the real culprit, which, you know, is a popular kind of uh, scenario, I believe, uh, television-wise. 
so uh it, you know it it uh, it's a different methodology than people would expect right now uh we we're right at the hour but uh, we can go longer if uh, I'd like to go a little bit longer and ask Paulette some questions and uh but just to to let you know and if you can hang around for a little bit as well, Tony. But if uh, yeah, I can. That... Uh, I'm supposed to be my time somewhere at six thirty, so I'm, I'm okay for a bit. Okay, great. Now, uh, Paulette, uh, just to give you something because um, you're patiently sitting here listening to this fascinating conversation. Uh, Paulette, tell us about the, uh, the putting together of this book itself, and and the inclusion of some of these cases, and what you. Uh, again, we know why you put this book together, but tell us a little bit more about how long this took to put this all together and why you included some of these cases and uh, just the whole uh, adventure. How, how how many times did you work with Tony for this? Tell us a little bit more about the, the putting together of this uh, book. <laughs> I have to laugh because, um, I mean, this has been a 17-year project, and Wow. I I had had I known um <laughs> I would have said are you out of your mind. <laughs> but um it, it you know I was just so taken by Tony and I was so fascinated by him. I wanted to know more about him in depth. Um I personally am much more interested in the person than the law. But of course you can, in Tony's case you can't separate the two. Right. And um it, in fact I mean he is the law this is his this is his marriage and um so i had to learn something about the law and i was i followed him around i was i guess i mean i wasn't really a groupie because there weren't too many other people doing it but i just i i wanted to get deeper and deeper and deeper into what makes this man tick and why and how is it that someone who is so dynamic in court how does he get through life does he send christmas cards does he you know is he a good driver does he wear seat belts i mean how does he deal with the normalcies of life because his his energy was just so bigger than life in court and is um i don't see any d- diminishment of that um even now and and so i i became deeper involved and as I said, I never intended to be writing the book, but since it got thrown at me, um, I, I, I sort of embraced it, even though I didn't know what on earth I was doing. I'd never written a book before. And um, I have to do a little bragging here. It's been on Amazon's bestseller list for a year now. Congratulations. Uh, in, in the digital version, which I'm quite proud of. Right. But um, anyway, it, 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 it was a bear. It was a bitch. It was difficult every inch and every step of the way and Tony understandably so became I guess fed up with the fact that it was taking forever and um, you know there comes a time when you no longer believe in the project and you think well she's just messing around this is never going to happen but I was ruminating and my river kind of went underground I was trying to figure out how to put together his life his law uh, who he, who I perceived him to be as a person, and um, bring it all into some sort of manageable form. And I must say, I was failing rather miserably until I came across this wonderful editor, Dee Castleman, 
who who was able to see the forest for the trees, or the trees for the forest. I'm not sure which way this works. <laughs> and um, and he 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 had a vision that I I was just snow blind on, and he managed to um, help me shape it in a way that did make sense and uh, had a flow to it and and brought out both Tony's person persona as well as his law and I think I just reread the book for this um interview and I was actually surprised at um what a good read it is and how its soul continues to glow and it's more than about just the law it's about life and perception and how one deals with things and I find it personally very empowering because Tony is yes. a person who has, I've never experienced him to have fear. He has concerns for his clients, but he doesn't. He goes for angels' fear to tread. And, um, you know, most of us don't don't dare to do that. I personally had a an upbringing that was based on fear. So Tony was, I don't know, a breath of kind of crazy fresh air for me. And um, I've, I've been infinitely emboldened by my in, uh, interaction with Tony and constantly am. I hope that answers let, your question. I, let me give you a few anecdotes, uh, the way I remember things. Uh, one is that Paulette would give me assignments, uh, in, like, for instance, you know, oh, talk about closing arguments, talk about informants, uh, talk about you know, your own weaknesses, uh, uh, talk about jury nullification, and I would uh, get a recorder in the old-fashioned tape, smoke a joint, and just, <laughs> you know, blither blather away, kind of what I call semantic uh, uh, dribble, and then give <laughs> the tape. <laughs> and never, you know, for 17 years, uh, I don't know what she's doing with it. Then on other occasions, I, you know, during... You know, I've been doing the 50. She she followed me around for 10 and took another seven to finish it. But in that 10, I was making speeches all over, and so I'd be up on some podium ready to give a talk to lawyers about you know some subject matter. And there she come and she put the recorder right in front of me. And I, oh, I'd give her kind of like a, you know a, a, a bad stare because yeah. when you have a recorder right in front of you, you start to be more particular, more watchful and your language and maybe not yeah. as spontaneous, uh, but uh, sure. you know I, I I could overcome it. And then in closing arguments, she was over, always there. And on case after case, she was the courtroom artist, and she is the one talk about a breath of fresh air. You know, most of the courtroom artist's work is what we'll call representational. She was what I call, this is naively stated, impressionistic. For instance, like if, if I pointed at someone, she would make five arms pointing. You know, if I uh, made a gesture, she would exaggerate the gesture, or she would exaggerate, you know, uh, the flinging of my hair, or a scowl, or a manifestation of anger. Uh, in uh, Like, like uh, <coughs> she would give me, in, in the drawings, like, more uh, power by the way she would repeat uh, themes. She was cherished by the judicial system, the lawyers. All of her works in on my cases, 
on cases, you know, that had no real uh, publicity, they would buy her, her her work. They would put it on television. And, you know, when she left after 10 years, she was missed in the courts. And I kept telling her, don't keep following me around. Go get, you know, Jerry Spence. Go get a lawyer from the east, from the south. Go get, you know, a Philadelphia lawyer. Get a New York lawyer and do a big book on all of us. And, and you know, it, it should be your work. Her work is so compelling. And, sure. and she, you know, is a, a great artist, uh, you know, and rather elegant, eloquent uh, a writer. And it's her gift and has made, from my perspective, me, you know, a sow's ear at best, uh, into a silk purse. So I'm, I'm very, uh, you know, respectful of her. <laughs> As you can see, Tony. <laughs> And is, is always understating things. Actually, he doesn't see what he looks like. And quite frankly, um, you know, I guess my art is in the eyes of the beholder, but um, it's definitely him. <clears throat> Tell us a little bit more about. I, I was surprised that I, I've only met one court reporter, and that's in, in the city that I'm in, in Winnipeg, in Canada. But uh, and and the. The trials are never televised, so the only thing that they have is the court reporter, as opposed in the U.S. there's often television cameras in there. Uh, they are televised. So tell us what, tell us a little bit about your job, and, and I was fascinated, if I'm not cor- correct or incorrect, you actually paint yes. while you're in the courtroom itself. I, I, well, I thought it was sketchy. Paint, it means that for television, they want the pieces to be in color. Okay. So, you know, one has to set up shop on one's knees. It's a very small little artist studio involving two knees and not too many elbows. And um, usually courtroom artists, different, which are different than court reporters, artists just do art. Although on the backside of much of my art, um, I do I have written down some of Tony's quotes that, that uh, he used in the trials which I think makes it quite interesting. Um, but the difficult, the difference between being a courtroom artist and, I don't know, another kind of artist is that you don't have time to consider anything. You just, uh, for me anyway, I have to be slammed by the impact of what I'm seeing, and then I have to hold that vision. And this is very much like Tony's um, photographic memory and how he... How he as he calls it, I think, rams or jams into his mind the night before the trial, vast amounts of of details. And as an artist, I have to do the same thing because, to me, the art has to tell a story. And it has to, it, it has to, I have to speak from my gut just as I received it from his gut. So it's kind of, I don't know, a boomerang thing or something. And um, and I have to hold that image long enough to draw it. And on one occasion, I even held it five hours when he um, suffered uh, the verdict of the Ellie Nestler's trial, the second um, the second phase of the trial. Tony was absolutely wiped out, and this this image of him in defeat was just impacted me so strongly. He obviously didn't want to have anything to do with anybody. I had a camera on my shoulder, but I thought he'd 
rear up and, I don't know, punch me if I dared to in some way disturb his depression at that moment. So I held that vision in my mind for five hours until I got home and was able to draw it. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a special uh, knack, and I don't know that I still have it because I haven't done courtroom art um, since, actually. I did it for a while in Las Vegas, but most courtroom art really bores me, and um, I thought I would love to get commissions from other people but never did. And the fact of the matter is Tony is the lawyer who has caught my eye and held my my interest and hello it is ryan and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day couldn't we just to make up for things like sitting in traffic doing the dishes counting your steps you know all the mundane stuff that is why i'm such a big fan of chumba casino chumba casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere with daily bonuses that should brighten your day a little actually a lot so sign up now at chumbacasino.com that's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And I would do it again, but um, it's not every lawyer that I, that I have that kind of connection with. Yeah, well, it's definitely it's a unique story uh, and definitely... Uh, I've read about a lot of defense lawyers, and and Tony definitely is just from a you know a, a different uh, different breed. That's all I can say, and uh, no <laughs> doubt about right. that. Now let's talk about uh, one thing that you know you talk about Tony's passion, and then the other thing I, I I found very interesting too. You you alluded to it about smoking marijuana since you were twelve, and it's a daily thing that you. So it's one of your beliefs as well. It's not everything to you, but it's certainly a belief. Now, what's very another thing that's very close to your heart and very strong, you have a very, very strong opinion, is about lawyers who would defend snitches, as you call them, rats, informants, and your decimation of an informant and your technique used in decimating the informant at trial against your client. So first, tell us what your personal philosophy is towards this and the lawyers that may represent them, and then tell us how you and why you use the techniques to uh, basically uh, deal with these clients and their and informants and the kind of cases that where you normally would have informants typically. All right, uh, there. That's a long uh, assignment, but let me do it uh, as quickly as I can. One, <clears throat> the use of informants is ever increasing. It started mainly in drug cases but is now like a disease and it's infiltrated every level of federal and state prosecution and you see it visited upon ultimately the one percenters, you know, the corporation types, the banker types, those very few people who are being prosecuted for the debacle that has occurred in their arena. So it's ever on the increase. Our country has more uh, uh, verbiage, more uh, 
designation of informants, moral law pertaining to informants than any other nation in the world. We have material informants, percipient informants, participatory informants. We have uh, reliable informants. We have sources of information. We have informants who are citizen informants. We have paid informants. We have informants who work for leniency on their own case. So there's a great, you know, a, a variability in the term in informants. Informant lawyers have cropped up because the government has coerced, from my perspective, so much, uh, you know, from the the uh, criminal process, uh, which allows them to create these informants. So. I have a very, very hard view, so it's at several letter levels. One, the individual receives the leniency. It doesn't ultimately benefit him. That person becomes a stranger in his own milieu. His friends forsake him, his family frequently believe that he was cowardly and not idealistic. Uh, he's constantly watching his back for repercussions. Many times he's relocated. So his life, you know, really ends and he never really starts again. And psychologically, he's been destroyed. That's one. Two is that the system that reward snitches is flawed because they ultimately give you what you want to hear. So uh, if I went out, pretend as a, as a defense lawyer, and I paid $10,000 to a witness to say the car was green and another 20000 to a witness to say that my client wasn't in the green car, you know, after the bank was robbed, I would be prosecuted you know, rightfully for suborning perjury, it would be a disgrace. But with informants, the government does that every day. They give what is more precious than money, they give liberty. They give 10 years to this guy. They give 20 years off on this guy. They don't even charge this guy. This is a clandestine informant. You know, he's been recording people. We don't even charge him. So it tilts the scale. Ultimately, it's one-sided. You start a trial, oh, I can beat one snitch. Maybe I can beat two snitches, but they'll they'll roll the top on you. They'll roll the side on you. They'll roll you from the bottom. You can't win. So it's one step you know, closer to a totalitarian government, a non-adversarial system, and, you know, ultimately then the whole system of justice, the truth-seeking foundation for our system of justice is destroyed. You cannot rely on informants in in order to convict, even where you think you have corroboration. So uh, it, it, it flaws the system. Lastly... You see, survival of the species is so strong in us. You know, we inherit the instinct. And it has always been, you know, the most grievous form of behavior is to turn on your family, to turn on your tribe, you know, uh, to turn on your government, to... uh, uh, to betray, it's called the Judas Syndrome. And the Judas Syndrome is so strongly embedded in all of us because 
we rely on loyalty to evolve, you know, to survive, to propagate our our seed, so to speak. And that's it. So it's a deep-seated instinct. In wartime, if a soldier, you know, kills whatever another soldier, you know, an act of treason, uh, he's subject to the death penalty. So it's always been the most heinous form of conduct. And that's exactly the conduct that these informants and the informant system begets. So it ultimately, you know, uh, vanquishes uh, the people that the, the movement or the ideology that the informant once embraced. Of course, that government likes that, but in the marketplace of ideas and in the marketplace of, you know, different forms of behavior begetting different norms, different standards, different mores in society. We need all of that. We can't just uniformize. So, you know, it's a multifaceted attack. The basic bottom line is informants do not tell the truth. They are, you know, working for the objective of leniency or money, you know, cash, they give money as well as leniency on occasion, and they will twist and deform what they, you know, recall in order to please the prosecutor in order to get their prize, and the lawyers who represent snitches aid and abet in that process, which ultimately destroys the basis, you know, of our criminal jurisprudence in the United States. So, you know, I I don't like them at at least five different levels. And when you cross-examine an informant, if the jury sees and feels the disrespect you have, that uh, the passion, you know, that you uh, uh, bring to bear on that disrespect, uh, the use of the vernacular, you know, uh, uh, you're called a rat in the prison system, aren't you? Objection overruled, said the judge. Uh, yes, you're a rat, yes. And you can't go home because you, no one respects you. You can't, you know, use your own name because that would identify you as a rat. You walk, you know, in peril every day of your life. I yell and scream at him, and I, you know, as Paulette says, I use vernacular. I don't use legalese. The idea in, in court of using words is to communicate. And if you use stilted language, if you're pedantic, if you want to show off your education or your special you know, interest, say, in psychiatry, it, it might uh, assuage for a moment your ego, but the jury's turned off and... and what I have found, I exist in the realm, you know, of emotion. So when I go after these snitches, you can feel my hate. And you, you can feel, you know, ultimately my denouncement of them. Uh, and I think that is more powerful than mere words. you got to know them, though. you got to know the snitch better than he knows himself. you got to know every foul deed he did. 
You have to interview the, you know, the women he left behind and the people that he cheated and the people that he, you know, sold drugs to and the people that he may have robbed. And so you, you go in and you're armed with every, you know, foul uh, deed and whatever falsification he's ever done. And then you dwell on it. You know, you don't want to have a snitch on the stand for 15 minutes or a half hour. You want him there for two goddamn days. It might be the second day that he starts to break or manifest. I had one snitch start taking the fifth right in front of the jury. That was practically the end of the case. Yeah. I had another snitch, you know, who was uh, molesting some child, and and, and uh, I brought the, the, the. It had nothing to do with the case, but the the guy, the person was not a credible human being. You know, he was a piece of feces. I'm, I'm trying to tell the jury that. So I have an investigator walk in with the child, you know, and, and say, that's the one you were sleeping with her during this time, weren't you? Blah, 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 blah. And, 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 you know, he started, he was ashen, and he started shaking on the stand. I knew then the jury wasn't going to convict. They hated him too much. So you, you have to make the jury ultimately feel the same page, the, the, the same passion, the same pain, the agony, you know, that you feel when there is a perjurious informant and you just, you know, and I call it, you're lying. You're lying right now to the jury, aren't you? Look at the jury. You know, what's your, like, the, I'll just, I'll yell at them or I'll go up close to them and and I don't know if you challenge him at a nonverbal level. It's like maybe they feel that you're carrying in your hand some kind of club and you're just going to whack them. And they start ultimately be intimidated by the cross-examination and then some truth, you know, spurts out on occasion. Uh, understand this, that the nonverbal communication in court is far more significant than the verbal. It's how loud you are and the modulation of your voice and the gesture that goes with it and what your eyes look like at the time you're cross-examining and your posture and your position in the court and how close you are to the jury. And when he answers, you look right at the jury if it's an answer that you want to emphasize. And it's the distance between two sentences that might be significant. It's the modulation of voice, the intonations that you bring to your, your language. All those things are far more important than the verbiage itself the concept of persuasion r requires concept of repetition you want to say the same things over and over and pretty soon at the end of the case those things are so solid and they might be only your questions you know and the standard instruction is the questions of counsel are not evidence but if that's all they hear and ultimately it rings a bell that can't be unrung in their mind so uh one of my subspecialties is going after the goddamn snitch. And, you know, ultimately I have no respect and, and they have no place in any honest system of justice. Now, I was going to ask uh, you, Paulette, and if, uh, because it's included in your, in your fine book, uh, that this brand of, of, of lawyering, of being an attorney, this, this dramatic style, has resulted in some attention from Hollywood, and I found it interesting that uh, the movie Class Action with Gene Hackman, Gene Hackman was actually sitting in the courtroom. Tell us a little bit about whatever movie interest or adaptations have, made, have been made from uh, Tony uh, and his appearances in court. Paulette. You're asking me? Um, well, 
there was True Believer with um, uh, James Woods and Robert right. Downey Jr. And then uh, that is from the Cholso Lee. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Tony. Uh, Cholso, no. Yes. Yes, Cholso Lee. Cho- yes. And then um, there was a television docudrama from the Ellie Nessler case called, I believe, um, oh, what the hell was it called? I've forgotten. The Mother's something rather, um, with Christine Leite. Right. And um, and then the Gene Hackman um, film, which was filmed in Tony's, partially filmed in Tony's office. Um, I would love to see a film made of this. In fact, I just sent a package to Russell Crowe. I can see Russell Crowe in the role of Sarah. Well. Um, but he didn't respond. <laughs> Um, I can also see a, a, a television uh, series such as House. Um, I think that would be quite fa- fascinating and fabulous. Um, well, you know, personally, yeah, I really, I'm I really open. do think I really do think it would be very. Uh, an actor would find it very, very interesting to play the role, and uh, lots of times that's what drives a lot of these things. So I think it, it, it's it's. Uh, I, I don't think give up on on approaching actors with the the, the the kind of the pitch anyway, for sure, certainly. And especially when you have all these uh, fine examples in your book of exactly what he does. You know what I found interesting, Tony. We've got to wrap up in a in a couple minutes, but I wanted to ask you this: um, Is there because I've watched television, you know, again fictional adaptations of of lawyers acting in court cases, and you see a lot of drama and unfettered speeches, uninterrupted by the court. Um, how on earth do you get to act the way you act in front of the judge? Is it is it that no lawyers are actually employing the techniques that you're doing, or do you have sort of a, a masterful time at the, at the, before the, the, the hearing, at the preliminary, at the voir dire, getting some of this? Obviously, these, these uh, judges must know you by now. How, do you ever get shut down by judges? How can you act the way you act in court? No, uh, I've never no, seen uh, anything of, like that. Uh, of course. The ones you know that are the most difficult are the judges. It, they're supposed to be, let's use the analogy of a soccer game, they're supposed to be the referee. Right. And I find after I get the ball around, let's call it the forwards and the back, and I'm ready to, you know, uh, get it past the goalie, it's the referee, it's the judge who's there stopping me. Because, you know, one is they may think the person's guilty and they want to manipulate what occurs and they might think that I may well get an acquittal and in their mind the guy's guilty. This would be a terrible miscarriage of justice and I call those the moralists. And they put their personal you know, moral perspective on the case beyond law and they will silence the attorney if they think the attorney is going to win in a case that they think should be lost. That's the worst kind of judge. Then there's the second kind, and that judge has been a prosecutor. Understand, in the criminal field, more than half the judges I encounter are ex-prosecutors. And they, you know, like for instance, last two nights ago, I'm at a restaurant, some retired cop comes up to me and says, I hate you, I hated you all your life, I've watched too many police officers' funeral, and I'm and I'm just looking up, mellow man, I'm saying, 
Hate is a very strong word. And how many times have you gone to the funeral of someone that a police officer has killed, sir? So I, I got judges who are ex-prosecutors. They fucking hate me. And they're going to do everything they can to obstruct me. I'm sometimes, I'm, I'm there at the podium, especially in federal court. I take my hand off the podium, make a gesture. Mr. Sherry, your hand's off the podium. Well, I'm gesturing, Your Honor. You can't do that in this court. You put your hand back on the podium. And then, you know, I, I sometimes I'll turn the podium so I can face the witness or face the... You, you've turned the podium. I have, Your Honor. I want to face the witness. You put that podium back and then that will precipitate a scream out and then I, you know, I've had jurors, they clear the jurors it's me and the judge, this has happened a number of times and I'm yelling is this the United States of America does a lawyer get to speak on behalf of his client you know, why are you uh, uh, you know, silencing me in front of the jury, this here is the deprivation of due process I want a mistrial right now and I'm yelling and screaming and and Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Uh, but yes, uh, you, you hit the nail on the head. It's one of my pet, you know, grievances that the judges sometimes will come down on me. Now sometimes it's just the opposite. I remember one case that was uh, filmed on 60 Minutes, so it's still around somewhere, uh, and they used a lot of the case in the in the in the piece. And the judge says to me, although she knew it was being filmed, she she calls me up, and, and, and uh, I think the DA, too, uh, to sidebar. Uh, Mr. Sarah, I don't care what you do in this court, but don't bore me. <laughs> Which was like an invitation, you know, uh, to, to stand on my head if I desired. So, But a lot of judges don't say it, but that's what they want. They consider it uh, in their world. Uh, somewhere between uh, entertainment and grand emotion. And because maybe, yes, it is rare, uh, they're enticed by it. And many times I get more forensic latitude than other lawyers. Hey, man, I, that line of questioning I tried to ask, and, you know, I got cut off. It was, the objection was sustained, where somehow I, uh, they'll let me do it. So it may be a product of age and, you know, reputation, or they just want to hear I don't know what uh, my version and my fashion so I have them on both sides and very few are really neutral although there is a segment that at least posture posture neutrality right. but they're they're biased one way or the other but they're just not manifesting it but yes uh, it's a problem for me certainly I, I could imagine for sure Anyway, uh, Paulette, I want to just uh, ask you uh, what you uh, have on the horizon. What's what's new? What do you? Uh, you must be doing some form of book tour, uh, doing interviews. Tell us a little bit about what's happened since the book has been released. Uh, when did it get released? And uh, and tell us a little bit about what's uh, what you're doing with it. It was released in uh, November 2010, and um, Tony and I have done interviews and readings and presentations in mostly in the San Francisco area uh, because he was in a god-awful triple murder trial that took up all his time and attention. But um, we did do a number of things in that area, and I'm about to probably um, rally again. And being in New Mexico, it's, you know, it's sort of a, a stretch to keep coming to California 
although my family and everybody's there, so it's nice. Um, but I'm about to um, try to put together something on the East Coast and in other places regarding this book, and I'm also um, writing a book about Marcel Marceau. We were friends and lovers, and that was uh, well, that's the next book. Wow, <laughs> that'll be something for sure. Definitely, uh, <laughs> let me know about that. We can be apprised of what's going on. It's a far cry from murder, but hey. <laughs> Yeah, it's all great history. Uh, yeah. Well, I want to thank you very much, both of you, uh, Tony Sarah and Paulette Frankel, uh, for this Lust for Justice, The Radical Life and Law of J. Tony Sarah. We've just touched upon this. Uh, people that have listened to this interview will, I'm sure, I'm certain, will be interested to read this book. It's just, it's, uh, and it's an amazing read. So I want to thank you very much and, and for coming on the uh, program and talking about this great book. You guys are both very, very engaging guests and I want to thank you for taking the time to come out and uh, speak to me and, of course, my audience. Thank you so thank much, you, Deb, uh, Deb, for having, for having us. us. I want to put in a quick plug for Tony. He's got his own book out called Walking the Circle about uh, prison chronicles. Um, so, anyway, thank you so much. It's been a joy and a pleasure, and um, thank you for having us. Well, thank you very much, and I'm going to have to, uh, once I've, I've got that knowledge, I'm going to have to invite you back on the program, uh, Tony, and talk about your book specifically. So that would be another fascinating thing if you have the time. But I want to thank you very much, uh, and you've been listening to Lust for Justice, Paulette Frankel and J. Tony Serra. Thank you very much. Have a great evening, folks, and good night. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night.